I noticed on Facebook that some of you have been watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Who, who's all been doing that over the Christmas break? There's some people here I know, but maybe not everybody wants to admit to that. I'm a bit of a geek that way. I've always enjoyed that, and the Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite movie series. Um, I've watched it almost every year for about 10 years, and now it's... Uh, Hit or miss, two out of three years, I tend to hit it around the Christmas season. I just started it this last week again. Um, and I'm watching the extended trilogy, so that's going to be a good 11, 12 hours, I think. I love the detail that went into the books, but also the movies. Like, the amount of thought that went into every little detail is just astounding. And... Uh, that's why I keep watching it, I think. I always find new little things. And it's this incredible story that took Frodo Baggins, a hobbit from his home in the Shire, across Middle Earth to Mount Doom to destroy a ring of power, the one ring that binds them all, the precious. It's a journey fraught with danger. It's a ring so evil it can corrupt the heart of the one who carries it. And the journey took six months to reach Mount Doom from the Shire. And it's the only place this evil, powerful ring can be destroyed. Finally, the journey finishes. After battles and chases and hardship and near death and gigantic spiders. Spider, singular. And finally, the journey finishes and the ring is destroyed despite the effect it had on Frodo. And Frodo is about to die afterwards as this mountain's exploding and there's lava flowing everywhere when the great eagles appear and pick up Frodo and his companion, companion Samwise Gamgee and flies them to safety. Oh, just gets me right there every time. Spoiler, yeah, I ruined it for you. If you haven't read the books or watched the movie by now, you weren't going to watch them or read them. So let's be honest. The journey is incredible, crossing all sorts of lands, the battles and kings and walking and talking trees, all sorts of wonderful things. Frodo and his friends endure so much until the last second is not certain the ring will be destroyed, and we're told this is the only way. Yet every time I watch the movie now, I get to the end, and the great eagle saved Frodo, and I'm like, yes, he saved again, and then I wonder, why... Didn't the eagles go to the Shire, pick up Frodo, and fly him to Mount Doom? And drop the ring right in and save six months of heartache and save us nine hours of movie watching. The whole book could have been a little thin novella <laughs> of how Gandalf called the eagles and they flew the ring to Mount Doom and it got dropped in. Has anybody else wondered about that watching this trilogy? I hope I didn't just ruin it for anybody, but sometimes these shows get more complicated than they actually need to be. And it's just these little details sometimes that uh, can change the whole story. So why am I telling you this? The book of Acts, I think, is the exact opposite of that. Is not one detail that could ruin the whole story. But I think we can look over incredible details in the book of Acts and minimize them 
and risk watering down not just the book of Acts, but the rest of the New Testament, and also minimize the work of God in our lives. These details set the stage for the whole book of Acts, and they're found in our scripture passage this morning. We read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And this passage is an introduction to the book. It sets the stage for everything to come and provides us the context and lens through which we should understand the events and narrative we find in the book of Acts. Now, why is it called Acts? It's actually shorthand for the full name. Originally, it was known as the Acts of the Apostles. And so, there's many apostles mentioned in it, but the book of Acts focuses primarily on two apostles that we're going to see over the coming months, Peter and Paul. But even that, they're not the focus. They're the vessels through which God speaks and works, along with the rest of the church that is present. With the chief character at work in the book of Acts is the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's dive into this book, starting with the first two verses. If you have your Bibles with you or the Bible on your device, I encourage you to follow along. Uh, you can make notes if you want. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And we read here, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So these two verses, you know, nice introduction, but they're giving us context for what is to come throughout the book. The author wants us to know this book is not written in isolation of anything else, but it's a continuation. And the author we know now is Luke, something that we've held to in the church since about the ninth century. And his name's not actually included, but we have the Gospel of Luke, we got the, uh, the Book of Apostles, and the person being written is the same in both books. There's writing style and the content all point to the same author that we know as Luke, Dr. Luke. So if you're reading Acts and you haven't read the Book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke lately, um, or ever, I would really encourage you to take this time this week and read the Book of Luke. Three, four chapters a day will get you through it pretty quickly. It'd be a really good read to set the stage for you for this sermon series. So encourage that. And Jesus as Messiah is the subtext for the narrative of Acts. That's underlying everything that's going to happen in the books of Acts. And Luke talking about Jesus the Messiah in the Gospel of Luke, and then the subsequent book, Acts, they need to be read together. One is not lesser than the other, but the whole of those two together is greater than the sum of their parts individually, as we see the fullness of the reign of the Messiah. Acts is not about the ministry of the church in the absence of the Messiah, in the absence of Jesus. Acts is ministry in the fullness of the reign of Christ. That's what it wants us to know. So we get to verses 3 to 5, and it switches from talking about Jesus pre-crucifixion to post-crucifixion. We read in verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, you'll notice, it doesn't directly refer to Jesus' death and resurrection other than to say his suffering. The text is assuming the reader knows what this is referring to. Again, verses 1 to 2 are giving us some context, and the assumption is we know the larger story that Luke has already written about in his gospel. And so post-death and resurrection, we see in this verse 3, three things that are done by Jesus. One, he made many convincing proofs. Proofs that he was alive, that he'd risen from the dead. And this is important for us to know that it's not just a fanciful thought that somebody's doing, but there's actually evidence made and given. He made proofs to people. We see that in the end of some of the Gospels. As Jesus met people, as Thomas touched Jesus' side. One of my favorite stories is Jesus having breakfast on the beach with the disciples. There's many convincing proofs, and Luke wants us to know this is not just a nice story. This is rooted in historical fact. This is the truth. Next, he appeared to them over 40 days. Now, 40 is important. Has anybody heard the number 40 in Scripture before? Where? The wilderness. 40 days in the wilderness. Where else? Noah and the ark. Where else? Jesus. What else? There's a lot of 40s, aren't there? 40 years wandering? 40 is really a number of preparation in which God does wonderful work to prepare for the future. And that number 40 is a hint to us is that Jesus is not done, but the season before he ascends to heaven is a time of preparation for what is to come. Both his ministry on earth before his crucifixion and his 40 days afterwards and his ministry post ascending to heaven, those are all important. And all are valuable. But that 40 days post-resurrection is a time of preparation of what is to come. And then third, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And this is the highlight there of what's mentioned. It's that important. It is the only teaching that is mentioned. It is the context of all of Jesus' teaching. It doesn't say Jesus taught this lesson or that lesson. He talked about the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sure there's lots of details in that teaching that we don't have handy right now in this passage. I'm sure he didn't just say, hey, there's a kingdom of God to people. He taught. He spoke about it. But Luke's making sure we know this was the focus of Jesus, is that it was about the kingdom of God. And Luke wants us to draw our attention to that as well. And then we move to verses 4 and 5, where we see a reiteration of the promise of the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 4, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is something that is fundamentally important to the church, and Luke is making sure we're going to be watching for this in what is to come. He's getting it on the back burner in our mind, so we see it and we know how important this is. And he's wanting us also to know that you don't start something with a promise to not deliver. 
And Jesus is starting with this promise post-resurrection. Hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come and baptize you. He's not saying that as some far-off distant promise. It's an immediate hope for the church. Luke knows what happened at Pentecost and is making sure we know how important what is to come is and will be and we're ready for that when it happens. And then we come to a side conversation of sorts that happens in verse 6. We read that they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And the disciples, we know, are, they're not seeing the larger picture and they are held up on their very human understanding. There's a sense of Jewish nationalism. Yet Jesus was far greater than that and was about something far greater than that. You see, sometimes we are limited as people by our desires, our understandings, our worldview, our focuses. And we get tunnel vision. Not that that's ever happened during COVID to anybody. And here's how Jesus responds. In verse 7 we read, He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Basically he's saying, guys, don't worry about those details. But then there's this but and it's an important one. Don't worry about these nationalistic ideals you have for Israel, but instead, I'm going to empower you to go into the whole world on behalf of Christ. The focus of the disciples is not what is to come, but what is right now. The Holy Spirit coming is not some end time thing, but an imminent reality, and that's the focus Jesus wants them to have. That God is with them through the Spirit and God is going to enable them to do ministry not just for the sake of Jerusalem and Israel but for the whole world. Because God's picture is far greater than what our picture is usually. In other words, he's telling them if you think this is just about Israel, guys, you've missed it. The disciples need to think bigger. We need to think bigger. We need to think bigger than Regina or Saskatchewan, than Canada or North America. We need to think global as believers. It's not just about us. And so often we interpret our faith through our cultural lens of where we live. And then we are lesser for it. We are called in Scripture to need the whole body of Christ. That does not just mean PCC. It does not just mean the Mennonite Brethren Church of Canada. It means all believers globally. And when we exclude the global faith, we are poorer for it because we miss out on the majestic work of Christ in the world. And I'd argue we miss out on the rich theology that comes out of the world beyond North American wealth. If that's all we read, if that's all we ingest, we're not being global Christians. We're being like the disciples. Well, God, what about my nation? And Jesus said to them, no, don't worry about that. This is for the whole world. This is about something bigger than your idea of a nation. God's salvation plan includes us. Yes, each of us. But 
it might be shocking to hear God's salvation plan does not center on Canada or even the United States of America. Jesus came for all people. And our brothers and our sisters in Christ globally have a wealth of experience of the Holy Spirit working in and through them that we are far richer to understand. But you know what? We have a problem right here even in Regina, don't we? Don't we like our comfortable group of people that are just like us? Don't we need to be engaging with others? Those on the fringes of our city that we don't know? Those who might make us uncomfortable because they're not what we're used to? And yet God's working in them and through them too. That's the church that God calls us to be part of. It's beautiful. It's stretching. It can be unsettling, but it's so rewarding. This is something I needed so bad in my life when I left Sherwood Park, Alberta. This white community. I've told you about that before. And to come to Saskatchewan and see the diversity, the beauty of God's world has been a gift to my family. And I've still got a lot of growing to do in this area. But I thank God for that. God's value and focus on geography and place, they're present. We see that. But they have a different purpose in light of the kingdom of God than they do in the eyes of the world and the powers within it. The gospel cannot be defined or limited by borders or boundaries. Acts does not have space for nationalistic leanings, but is kingdom of God all in. Nations are the location where we live, but the kingdom of God is how the stage for how we live and what we live for is. That's what God wants. He wants us to be kingdom of God people, first and foremost. I think we can miss out on that. And then we come to one of the most important details in this passage. When we read in verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. I think this is one of those verses that we just kind of can read past sometimes. Oh yeah, that's nice. He ascended to heaven. Great. The implications for us as followers of Christ in this verse alone are astounding. This is just so important. It sets the stage for everything to come. That 40 days of preparation we talked about, this is what it's preparing for. Jesus ascending to heaven. All of the book of Acts, the early church experience and mission happens because Jesus is in heaven and sends the Holy Spirit to us. Jesus is in heaven and his ascension is proof that this is greater than other miracles. That this is something more than raising Lazarus from the dead. That Jesus is the divine son of God. That his mission and his ministry continues. And we need to make sure we don't just talk about death and resurrection when we talk about Jesus, but we talk about the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And, of course, that one, more day, one day Christ will return. 
Jesus has ascended and he is the king on the throne ruling. We cannot speak of God's kingdom if Jesus is not the king of kings, the Lord of lords. His ascending to heaven is a statement about the kingship of Christ. And we read in Revelations 5.13 where it talks about Jesus and it says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The throne is not in Israel, it's in heaven. And the one on the throne is Jesus the Christ, the one who died on the cross, rose again and ascended into heaven and will one day return. And this is the context for everything we're going to see in the book of Acts. And if we don't understand that how foundational that is to our faith, to our life, to our understanding of scripture, we are watering down the very gospel we proclaim our faith in. This is the context of the book of Acts, but also for our lives and for our ministry. We serve the king, the living king, the king who reigns on his throne in heaven. Jesus is going to heaven for us, went to heaven for us, ahead of us. The ascension is not Jesus turning away from us, not abandoning us, but is actually him focusing more intently on us. It is Jesus empowering us and enabling his church to do his ministry in the world through the person of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And then we get to verse 10. And we read that they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. I love this passage. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? I'd be like, um, because people don't normally ascend to the sky. But that's not their point, is it? They tell them, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's the promise we have that we hold on to. Our faith is not about just having our sins forgiven so we feel warm and fuzzy about ourselves. It's about aligning our life with the kingdom of God, of living as a part of the kingdom of God and having our hope in the eternal restoration of creation by God. That one day, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will return from heaven in glory. And that is foolishness to the world. But that's what we place our hope in. That's our desire, is to have a relationship with the God who redeems, transforms, and saves. And so in this, we're called to not live in the past, but live in the now. Because Jesus is at work through the Spirit and he's calling us to live in the world here and now to do his work just like he did the early church. And that's what those angels are calling the disciples to do. It's, guys, why are you still standing here looking? That happened. That's done. Get busy. Do what you've been called to do, what you've been equipped to do, and what you've been enabled to do in this world. Because this world needs Jesus more than ever. And when that spirit comes, you better get going. And we've got that spirit. Are we going? 
Are we moving for the kingdom? Are we living for the kingdom, doing the ministry of the kingdom? Something we need to wrestle on. And the second part of the ascension that's mentioned here is Jesus will come back. So we root ourselves in the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the one day return of Jesus. That is our profession of faith. Jesus reigns in heaven and on earth, and one day the fulfillment of all that Jesus has done will come to be. And the lens we view the book of Acts, the New Testament, all of Scripture, all of faith, the lens through which we should view all the world is set out in this passage for us. It is the lens of the King of Kings reigning in heaven and one day returning and completing his work here in our midst. A work of grace, a work of redemption, a work of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this first 11 verses sets quite the stage, doesn't it? It sets the tone for everything we should understand that's to come. It's about the kingdom of God coming into this world, breaking forth. And without these first 11 verses, the rest of Acts really doesn't make sense. Without these verses, we do not see the fullness of Jesus as the king of kings if he is not ascended, if our hope is not in him, if he's absent and not returning. But he did ascend. He is alive and will one day return. And the stage is set. And the message is clear. And this introduction in Acts is in short, it is declaring a revolution has occurred in our world and is still taking place. The kingdom of God is here and is breaking forth into it, usurping the powers of sin and evil, the powers of brokenness and death. It is usurping all worldly powers. The kingdom of God is not a specific place. It's not a nation. It's not a belief system. It's not a denomination, a government, or a work of fiction. The kingdom of God is not necessarily even heaven. The kingdom of God is God's rule in the hearts of his people wherever they are. The kingdom of God is wherever God's disciples, where Christ's disciples and the Holy Spirit are at work in their lives. The kingdom of God is here. It's there. This has been one of the beautiful things for me with COVID. As much as I miss having everybody here, I love seeing that we don't identify church just with a building. The church has been spread out. The kingdom of God has been spread out. The kingdom of God is where we are and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. And look at what God's done during COVID, where he's put Christians all over this city, in neighborhoods, in workplaces, in connections. He's put you there for a reason. He wants to use you for kingdom work. And I'm excited by that. This passage, it spells out the foundations of the revolution of Jesus that is transforming the world a transformation we're going to see as we journey through the book of Acts over the coming weeks and months. 
And may we be a part of that revolution. May we let the reign of Christ in heaven transform us as his servants. May we let his kingdom overtake us and transform our lives. Let's bow in prayer. We hear stories in scripture, Jesus, of you. And we're familiar with them. Help us not to lose awe of who you are, what you did, and what you are doing, and what you will do. Help us not to become numb to your majesty. Help us to recognize ourselves not just as servants in terms of a nice word to say, but actually that we are your servants. We are servants of the living king, the king who reigns on the throne in glory, the king who has sent his spirit into this world to empower his people. And may we choose daily to live as people of your kingdom where you have placed us, sharing your love, sharing our love for you, sharing your love with others and sharing the truth of who you are through our words and our actions so the King of kings may be glorified in this world and your kingdom will come in its fullness. In your name we pray, amen.